This is the Champlain Society podcast, Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and I'm in downtown Toronto at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. My guest today is Peter Russell, one of Canada's foremost political and constitutional scholars. Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto, Peter Russell is the author of what has become a landmark book, Constitutional Odyssey, now in its third edition. Today, we are going to talk about his newest book, Canada's Odyssey, a country based on incomplete conquests. This book explores the historical origins of the political and constitutional develops that have preoccupied Professor Russell for most of his life. Peter, Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Thanks. Nice to be here, Greg. Well, let's start with uh, the question of how does a political scientist come to write history? Well, uh, in my case, it's my intellectual formation. I didn't study much political science. I I studied history and philosophy uh, mostly, and... uh, I've always uh, seen history as producing what I need to know about the context of politics. Uh, In my own country, in virtually any country, I find it hard to deal with the politics of Finland or uh, Myanmar if I don't have a a good grasp of their basic histories. Now, do you think history is actually too important to be left to the professional historians and academic uh, history departments? Oh, for sure. Uh, I I describe myself uh, as an unlicensed uh, historian, and there's a lot of us, uh, some of them uh, in the media. I think of someone, uh, well, many who write good history in magazines and, uh, and, and, and publish books without having their... PhD in history, and they do terrific uh, research and analysis. So you you can do this. Uh, you can do some history if you uh, have integrity in in terms of looking at the right sources and assessing them fairly, without being a licensed historian. Well, uh, I note the title of your newest book. Um, you're quite mischievous. It actually is very close to your a book that went into three editions. Now, why did you choose that main title, Canada's Odyssey? Well, when I published uh, Constitutional Odyssey, uh, the subtitle of that book was, uh, I'll go slowly now, Can Canadians Be a Sovereign People? And the important word there is that, ah, one single sovereign people. And um, basically, I came to the conclusion in that book that uh, Canada couldn't. And while that uh, was well-received in Aboriginal and French Canada, in English-speaking Canada, people couldn't understand what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, And so I began to work uh, on that kind of... uh, um, a problem that English-speaking Canadians were having with the reality of the nations within. Uh, They hadn't come to see that for neither the French Canadians 
nor the members of the historic Indian nations or the Inuit or the Métis, they, they would say, uh, none, none of those communities would say, well, whatever the majority of Canadians really want, that's it for us. They don't belong to a single people that can decide their own fate. They are nations within. Uh, and uh, I wanted to pursue that because I thought, well, it's not well understood uh, in the, for the majority of Canadians. Well, how frustrated were you with that attitude? Uh, I mean, you must have been surrounded when you did your first edition of your book, Constitutional Odyssey, by people who didn't get it. Oh, uh, absolutely. Oh, and, and some were, some got kind of angry with me. Uh, don't I know we're a sovereign nation state? I, I never question that. Uh, but it was whether you belong to a, a sovereign people in John Locke's sense, uh, a people who you are so much a part of, you trust the majority to decide your fate and the fate of your people. And French Canadians and Indigenous Canadians have never felt that. And uh, I wanted to see where that was coming from and where it was coming to uh, in our present time. Well, let's return to the subtitle, uh, Incomplete Conquest. Right. right. Can you explain exactly what you mean by that? <laughs> well, I, I must say some of my colleagues wondered when I, I told them that that was the t what I was working on. Um, they actually thought uh, I was looking towards a complete conquest and let's get the job done, uh, which of course uh, would be the very opposite of what uh, my book is arguing. Uh, well, what I meant is that um, first for the, the French, who were the first uh, people to call themselves Canadians and were um, here for about seven, six, seven generations when um, Britain took over uh, in their land. Uh, the British, instead of uh, sending them all away, all 70,000, as they did the Acadians just a few years earlier, uh, allowed them to stay and worship and have their own laws and... Uh, uh, didn't completely conquer them. It dominated them, uh, but uh, it left them the core of their distinct uh, society and encrusted it in the Quebec Act and, and to some extent won their loyalty. Um, so that's, uh, that's not a complete conquest. Um, with the indigenous people, after... Uh, uh, using them, I think that's a fair word, as military allies and in, in independent uh, nations that were uh, allied with the Britain with Britain in both the American Revolutionary War and the War of the Great Northwest after that, and in the War of eighteen twelve, um, that they certainly weren't conquered. <laughs> uh, they were our military military allies, and, and we had uh, alliances with them. Uh, but then, uh, when the, as the British pulled out and we settlers moved in, uh, we just found the Aboriginal people were in the way. They were no longer military allies. We didn't want to turn on them and kill them or anything, but we developed the uh, 
self-centered idea that the best fate for them would be to be like us. And um, we tried really almost, uh, well, brutally to make them like us. And the high point, uh, high tide of that came during the Indian Act period, uh, which in partly is still with us. So they, they, they were never um, killed and, and conquered. Uh, and then he said, but we try, uh, we, I'm speaking now as a member of the English-speaking majority, we certainly hope they would disappear uh, in, and just be absorbed into the mainstream of Canada. That was the aim. Well, uh, I found that your book was organized in a, in a very, very fascinating way. Um, it's, it's, it appears in some ways to be chronological, but there's, an, uh, there's a rhyme and a reason to it that goes way beyond chronology. Mm -hmm. Would you like to explain the logic of how you organized the book and why you organized it in this way? Well, yeah. Uh, the logic is really there's two, two sort of arguments going through the book, but they, they, they complement each other. One is that the big developments and turning points in our history uh, all related to how these three foundational pillars, Aboriginal Canada, French Canada, and I always pause to identify the next one because I do not say English Canada. My, on my mother's side, I'm Welsh, and she could hear her rolling in her grave. And it's English-speaking Canada, which is far more than just today, British people, British Americans. And it's the big pillar. How those three pillars, English-speaking Canada, Aboriginal people, and uh, French Canada, um, how they have interacted at, and at crucial moments changed the relationship. Uh, and always I found because they, one or other or all three of those were changing within. They, those pillars never stand still, including the Aboriginal pillar. Their circumstances, their political constitutional ambitions change, and when they do, these are the big events in uh, in our history. And related to that is uh, so the, the the three pillars uh, make Canada. Uh, there has to be something to hold them together. If they were just three separate pillars: Aboriginal people, French people, with and English-speaking people with their own ideas, their own political ideologies, we wouldn't have a country. So there's a fourth player besides the three pillars, uh, and that's uh, the development of a shared, a shared <laughs> civic culture, by which I mean institutions, principles for deciding what, how we're be best governed uh, and uh, that are acceptable to all three of the pillars. And that doesn't, the, there are seven elements in it. I introduced at various points in the book, three before confederation. Um, and the final one, uh, which I introduced in the 21st century, is, um, of course, di accepting diversity as the core of Canadian identity. That's number seven. And once that's done, the, 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 there is a... Uh, a seven-part civic culture that is the glue that holds this country together. Well, let's return to the seeds of this, what you call embryo civic culture. Yeah. 
uh, and your emphasis on pre-Confederation history in right. this regard. Yeah. First is parliamentary government. The second is the monarchy. And the third is constitutionalism. Mm-hmm. Can you describe each of these, why they're so important and why their foundation is so firmly based in pre-Confederation history? Well, parliamentary government is, uh, uh, I think, the most important part of our British inheritance uh, because it's a form of governing in which the legislature and executive uh, are are pretty closely joined together. Uh, It leads to a strong government, and eventually when we get... Uh, responsible government, the idea that those who have executive power uh, have to uh, uh, have the confidence of the elected legislature, and we grant the franchise uh, to all uh, adults. Um, It's a system of government that um, all three pillars of Canada like. If you just take uh, French Canada, bought into it big time in 1791, Aboriginal Canada, totally excluded until fairly recently, has been buying into it. They're now represented in, uh, in Parliament, even uh, have a larger percentage of seats in the House of Commons, and they have people in the population. That doesn't mean that they've just given up their own institutions um, and uh, are going to just accept parliamentary government. But... Uh, Often, when they do get their own system of government, this is particularly true of the Inuit, uh, they set up parliamentary models, which they've done in northern Labrador and Nunavut. So parliamentary government seems uh, an agreeable form of government. Put another way, there's no support, even in Quebec, uh, for a division of powers like the American Republic uh, has, and uh, that's never been... A popular idea. Well, in fact, the, the probably the, uh, the the most important challenge to parliamentary government came through some of the proposals of the early Reform Party, uh, which wanted changes in terms of Triple E and uh, referendum and that sort of use, which was in, in fact not sort of uh, directly part of the parliamentary tradition. Mm-hmm. But when you go to uh, the legislatures in uh, Nunavut and Northwest Territories, they've made amendments to the parliamentary uh, system uh, by having uh, non-party governments in a way. Right. But when you observe how they work, they work almost identical to parliamentary governments in the other provinces and territories in Canada. Yeah, w- without the parties which I think many Canadians would find attractive. <laughs> I mean, they they really, when you're uh, in one of those legislatures and they're debating the budget or policy, the outcome is not preordained because a party has a majority. It really has to be discussed, and the, the um, executive that have introduced it and, and have places in the legislature have to— have to persuade a majority of the legislature this is a, a good act or a good budget. That's right. And so the one difference is in terms of the direct linkage back to constituents and mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. members yeah. Uh, yeah. representing those constituents. Uh, at the same time, however, what is quite similar is the selection of cabinet and the greater responsibilities of cabinet members 
and their uh, solidarity once they've made decisions often when they go back to uh, the legislature as a whole. So there, you know, yes. there are differences, yes. but there are also important similarities. Well, you've talked about parliamentary government. Oh, now, yeah. what about the monarchy? Well, some people say, well, Russell, that's the wobbliest of your seven components. Um, but it certainly wasn't wobbly at the beginning. The French uh, found no difficulty in switching their allegiance um, from a French monarch who was absolute to a constitutional monarch uh, who governed with parliament. Um, and the aboriginal people, even more so, uh, saw the crown uh, in a family way, not as a source of authority over them, uh, but a, a powerful, a great white mother or father who uh, was... Uh, in a kind of a, a, a affectionate uh, relationship of, of responsibility uh, towards them. Uh, lots of power, um, but exercise as a loving member of a family ought to exercise power. And what do you mean by constitutionalism in terms of that third pre-Confederation pillar? That whoever is governing... Uh, however popular they might be, and that they there are restraints on how they govern, how they the procedural restraints, uh, rights of people that must be observed. There are limits on the power of any government, and constitutionalism before Confederation was essentially in the form of uh, what we call, uh, misleadingly. Um, uh, the unwritten part of our Constitution, but the principle, for instance, that those who are advising the Crown that has legally all executive power, those who advise the Crown must command a majority in the elected Chamber of Parliament. That's a really crucial limitation <laughs> on government. I mean, uh, and uh, it was well in place without being written into any legal document uh, before Confederation, and after Confederation, we get into more le legal-type uh, limitations, uh, uh, culminating in, the, I suppose, the Charter of Rights and the recognition of Aboriginal people in Section 35 of our modern Constitution. You also spend a fair amount of time talking about the pre-Confederation betrayals of Indigenous peoples and the uh, legacy of this post-confederation. Yeah. Do you want to describe that a bit? Well, it's a, it's a big black, you can't even say chapter, it's a, it's a big black dark part of our history. Um, and uh, it doesn't help to say we share it with uh, other European peoples who went out with the uh, confidence that they were bearers of a superior civilization, which entitled them to impose their rule on uh, uh, lesser breeds. But that was the, um, more and more after Confederation, uh, the uh, outlook of the majority of uh, settler population and their politicians in Canada. And we imposed uh, a very... Uh, authoritarian uh, rule, uh, often with uh, dreadful consequences on, on the indigenous people. 
not only um, for many of them uh, spo- uh, undermining their uh, pride in their own uh, cultures and history, not for all of them, thank God, uh, but also killing quite a few. We Terrible health conditions when we got them into residential schools by the early 1900s. Uh, an independent medical report reported that one quarter didn't come out alive. What would we say today in any school in Canada if a quarter of the kids there died while they were residents in the school? Uh, and the word racism doesn't come easily to my lips, but... You could only shrug that off, uh, and Canadians were made well aware of it by Saturday night. The publicized was um, the the deaths, that rate of deaths in the Bryce report. You could only shrug that off by thinking in your mind, and I'm afraid our English-speaking ancestors did. Well, they're just Indians. That's racism, big time. Let's move now to the what you describe as the failed assimilation of French Canada. And there's, of course, a long historiography on this. Uh, But can you describe this in terms of what I would call the connection to the compromise of confederation? And maybe you disagree with that term, but can you you describe how what uh, was obviously a failure in the minds of of some of uh, of English speaking Canadians, in particular those that uh, that were responsible for governance in Canada, uh, uh, what they viewed as a failure, but ultimately became mm-hmm. uh, wired into the Confederation Pact as we know it. As we know it today, yeah. Well, the Compromise of Confederation uh, was simply that the. Um, the French Canadian people, uh, rather than being forced uh, by a, an English-speaking majority uh, into uh, be assimilated, would have a, a province in which they could be the majority. They would survive. The 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 uh, conquest would be incomplete, and uh, that sort of nailed it down. But uh, so that's the kind of upside. The downside was that over the ensuing years became more and more clear that the compromise was limited in that um, the English-speaking majority wanted French Canada to be cabined, that's the word I use, confined to one province. They didn't want the country as a whole to be a a country of French-English, a dualistic country, at least in terms of the European um, cultures uh, that was, and they fought hard to the English-speaking majority and their leaders to prevent uh, Canada outside of Quebec from uh, servicing well and being a good home for French Canadians. They they didn't want a French-English Canada from coast to coast to coast, and uh, there were a lot of. Uh, French uh, Canadian leaders, Henri Barassa, and uh, to a lesser and, and Laurier at his best, uh, that was what they pushed for, and they they, they didn't get the compromise. Um, the English-speaking majority got its way, and 
uh, it's it's. Uh, I'm interested that you're interviewing me today, but it didn't get it completely because uh, you're part of the French immigration that dis- to Saskatchewan that, despite uh, there being um, really not the kind of uh, rights that uh, you should be enjoying there, uh, they weren't in place. No, and uh, for sure that uh, in the francophone settlements outside of Quebec, including those that my family lived in. Uh, they advocated for decades uh, in, in, in terms of these historic rights, and uh, it uh, has been a long, long, long journey uh, and uh, is, is, uh, had some failures along the way. But mm-hmm. can you talk about uh, uh, the in, – in terms of this, when you have a country like Canada – you have the federal government and one provincial government, which are officially bilingual, and then you have uh, uh, the the other provinces. I'm not going to talk about the territories now. The other provinces are officially uh, unilingual, uh, seven, of course, uh, being uh, English and one French, but there's compromises made even there so that there's a a policy of providing uh, material and providing certain uh, English language services in Quebec and uh, uh, in in Ontario providing certain French language services Mm -hmm. uh, and translation at times. Do you think that that will remain the compromise for the next uh, 20 or 30 years, or do you think that is going to be subject to change? It's taken a while to get here. It seems to have settled out. All the great controversies in places like Manitoba uh, seem to be resolved, but perhaps they're not. I'm not good on the future. Uh, I I see us at an era now where uh, the opportunity for English-speaking parents to educate their children, I'm not even talking about French-speaking uh, parents in French, the opportunity for them to have a, a good French education in Calgary or Toronto or Vancouver or Halifax is embraced. I mean, we've never had the kind of enrollments of English speaking kids in French speaking institutions, uh, which I think is a, a, a wonderful sign uh, of uh, our coming to terms, it's not so much with a, in a compromising way, but with the reality that knowing French as well as English and even other languages is a huge asset, uh, both for a Canadian and for a citizen of, of today's world. So I think that will continue, uh, and uh, we're, we're not going to have crises over that. I think we could create a crisis if someone called us all to the constitutional table and tried to draft some change in the Constitution to make it a constitutional right. I don't know whether we we do very well in terms of finding a, a clear consensus across the Federation on how to do that in a formal constitutional way. Now, about the evolution of English Canada after 1867, what stands out in your mind? I mean, English-speaking Canada. 
Well, what really stands out in my mind is what bastards we became. <laughs> and that includes part of my own family. Um, my parents, uh, on my father's side, uh, didn't come until 1913. But in the, uh, that latter part of the, uh, uh, of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, the, the English-speaking population became ultra-British and imperialistic and uh, intolerant of the French and considering that they're traitors if they didn't support the Boer War and all that. We became SOBs. In Ontario, we passed Regulation 17 that banned teaching French, made it a crime in any school, including schools in French Catholic majority areas. Uh, you've got to be pretty nasty <laughs> people. Are, and I think we were genuine, nasty uh, uh, imperialists. And when did that change and begin uh, to alter course? After World War I. Uh, it, it, it began to change big time. And through politics, uh, uh, Mackenzie King's liberals uh, started to uh, recognize um, the strength of... Uh, of Canada would be uh, abandoning the close ties uh, with Britain, and uh, that would be a, a key source of national unity by cutting the apron strings. And the, uh, the Conservatives at first were disturbed by uh, Canada going in, towards Dominion autonomy. But by doing that, by cutting the ties with Britain, which we did in the 20s, um, the, we we made it much easier for French and English to come together and form a country uh, together. What is the, the the main policy lesson, if you were advising the government of Canada today, what would be the main policy lesson that you would draw from this very sweeping history of Canada? Uh, one for sure, and I say it several times, don't try for a big fix. We tried for big fixes in the late part of the 20th century. The last two were Charlottetown, and well, Meech Lake and then Charlottetown. Um, this isn't a, a country that has uh, an overwhelming uh, majority in favor of anything, and the, including the French and the uh, Aboriginal people. And if you try to get a, a, a constitutional consensus on a lot of issues, you're, you're just going to make the divisions worse rather than better. Uh, we're not uh, able to have a big constitutional resolution of all our difficulties without blowing the country apart. The other is, and that's what I'm working on now, we should just abandon one word from our political vocabulary. Fortunately, it's not in our Constitution, and that's the word sovereignty. It does bad work. It doesn't do anything good. It doesn't do anything good for the Quebec nationalists. It doesn't do anything good for the English-speaking uh, majority uh, who, are trying to, who tried to lord it over everybody else. Aboriginal people have adopted it in self-defense. If you guys are claiming sovereignty over us, we claim our own sovereignty. But it's, uh, it, it comes from your uh, Christian Judaic tradition. It is a bad concept for the whole world, and I'm trying to kill it. And I, 
They tell the government, don't use it. And the Supreme Court is still using it, trying to reconcile Aboriginal people with what? Not the sovereignty of the Canadian people. Uh, I wouldn't even like that. But the sovereignty of the crown, which is BS. The crown's not sovereign. My guest today was Peter Russell. We talked about his newest book, Canada's Odyssey, a country based on incomplete conquests, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2017. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find out more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blog, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to donate to our charitable society if you like these conversations about Canadian history. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University and was produced by Sumit Dami and Naomi Katz. We look forward to you joining us again.